Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers, and I'm happy that you're joining us again this week. Uh, appreciate your being with us. I, I'll, I'll be inviting you to uh, interact with me today. Uh, you're welcome to submit questions. The last couple of weeks, we've been addressing shame and uh, recovery in regards specifically to men. And uh, uh, last week, we talked about men in recovery and how to say you're sorry or make amends in a way that's effective. And um, we'll be uh, continuing with the theme of recovery and, and weaving this issue of shame because it's so um, relevant and oftentimes precarious uh, in recovery. So we'll be weaving it in today, but we'll be opening up the conversation to be uh, more inclusive of, of both genders, okay? So uh, today's topic will be unshaming uh, self-forgiveness as daily practice in recovery. And I'll be unpacking all of that as we talk today. Um, as I said, I, I want to invite you to submit questions while I'm thinking of it. Uh, you're welcome to uh, uh, also uh, tag friends, uh, share what we've done here, to, uh, what we're doing here today with friends uh, online through your various social media. Uh, I want you to know that, that spreading the word, people end up reaching out to me. So I appreciate that. It's uh, kind of uh, this, I'm very interested in getting the material out there and to be of service, and it and it feels like it's reaching broader and broader audience, broader audiences, and that's owing to your support. So thank you. We have people all over the country and sometimes from all around the world listening in, and it, it's fun to uh, see where you're coming from and acknowledging you here. So I want to welcome all of you as we embark uh, on today's topic. Before I proceed, I want to um, honor my. Uh, uh, my invitation uh, to submit questions by entertaining a question that was actually submitted last week and I didn't get it till after the podcast. And I'd like to respond to it today because it's so, uh, it's so key. Remember that we talked to last week about, particularly with men, how can men make amends that uh, are really meaningful? And we went through six different steps of that process. And with the focus being on uh, uh, the man, the male, uh, uh, saying he's sorry. And we talked about some of the difficulties, especially for men, in, in taking that step of being vulnerable. And we focused on uh, different behaviors, different attitudes that will facilitate that being effective. And the question that came in last week was from Angela, and I want to spend a few minutes here at the beginning today just because I feel like uh, it's such a, a key question and it kind of fills, fills in the other half that I didn't discuss uh, uh, much at all. And uh, her question was, how we've been focusing on how to give uh, apology, to make amends, but what about to be on the receiving end of that, whether you're a man or a woman? Are, are there tips or uh, suggestions that I might make that, uh, that would enhance the receiving of, of the amends? And I really appreciate the question. And I think it was an oversight of mine not to focus. We're talking about repairing a rupture in relationship, and it's not possible to do that without holding the relationship um, in a kind of both and inclusive perspective. So I think I want to start with the first comment in response to uh, Angela. And for you to know, I also engaged with Angela after the podcast. Uh, we spoke 
and uh, address this. And so I want to acknowledge Angela's contributions to, to uh, where we go in the next few minutes too. Uh, this came from Angela is that she said, it's probably really essential, and I fully agree, that dialogue be given high priority. And so that if I'm apologizing to you, for example, that it's uh, important for me to check in with you uh, with how it's going, what it is you need, uh, have I gotten it right? Is there something that you would add or modify? And so that we have a two-way two dialogue to make sure that, that if the, the healing is to be of the relationship and if you want to heal mutuality, then let's make the process itself mutual uh, and uh, interpersonal. So that's one tip is that, is that in terms of receiving apology or amends, it really helps if there's a dialogue where the one who's on the receiving end can share her or his perspective on what happened, what was wrong, and what, uh, what might be necessary to make, uh, make it right. Uh, there's another uh, piece that I reflected on after Angela asked the question, and that is um, uh, owning our own shadow. I think it's really important for the one who's receiving, we're focusing on that for just a minute here today, I think it's really important for the one who's receiving the apology to examine his or her heart to make sure that they're not, how do I want to say this? There's a humility involved even in receiving, and the humility is this, is that on another day, if I'm the one receiving an apology, on another day, I might be the one extending an apology. And so let me not get too far away from my own fallibility, my, the, my own mistakes, my own missteps. Uh, there's a phenomenon in psychology called splitting, where, and we're all... Uh, uh, party to this in one degree or another, where I can split off parts of myself that I don't like. Psychology calls this the shadow, the parts I don't want you to see. I can split those off and oftentimes project those onto somebody else. And so the technical term is splitting and projective identification, where I split something off, I project it onto you, and then I kind of vicariously identify with your being the lousy, no good person that I have basically evacuated from myself. I don't have any of that. And when we talk about owning the shadow, it's about withdrawing the projection and really owning the fact that, as I say, that I'm, I'm fallible, you're fallible, for now you're apologizing. Let, let me remember my own uh, frailties, my own vulnerabilities, uh, even as I'm receiving. I think it can really help to engender an attitude of uh, more compassion if I also remember my own failings with uh, self-compassion. And then, and then a, a final comment in response to your question, Angela, is that I think that a common barrier, maybe the greatest barrier to really receiving an apology fully is uh, resentment. <clears throat> Now, if you've been involved in the 12-step programs, you'll understand the, the tremendous emphasis that's placed, for example, on uh, moving through those 12 steps, on making sure that we uh, vanquish resentment, that we clean that out or clear that out. And uh, uh, the, the uh, fourth and fifth steps, for example, where we're making lists of those we have wronged and those that we have uh, had resentment towards, it really is a chance to kind of confess our resentments uh, resentment is oftentimes framed, especially in the 12-step programs, as one of the core enemies of sustained and successful recovery. So it's given uh, a lot of attention. 
And uh, how I think about that in terms of receiving an apology is that if, if, if you're apologizing to me and I continue to harbor resentment or a grudge, uh, it may make it very hard for me to actually hear or receive the uh, spirit of what you're trying to, to express to me. And so that raises the next question, which is, if I have resentment, what's to be done? Uh, my own sense of it is that the antidote to resentment is forgiveness. In fact, somebody who's written about this, I think, uh, in recent years wonderfully is the spiritual writer Eckhart Tolle in his uh, book, The Power of Now, addresses this kind of um, um, antidote relationship of the relationship of forgiveness to resentment. I think he puts it this way, is that to forgive is to relinquish resentment, is to let go of resentment. Now that begs a practical question, and that is, how the heck do we get to forgiveness? And so what I want to do is I want to uh, draw your attention to the archived videos here from our podcast series, specifically in our, uh, our fourth week, our fourth podcast. You can find it. It's referred to as Self-Compassion and Recovery. You can find a link to it right here on the Facebook page um, of Beginnings or of Ask an Addiction Specialist. There's an archive available. And we really plumb the depths of this issue of self-forgiveness or self-compassion in that episode. We've touched on on it in a number of episodes because I do feel like it's another one of these kind of central abiding threads throughout uh, recovery. Uh, but that, that, that was a whole session devoted to developing some skills there. What we focused on was uh, uh, some of the, the, the research behind uh, self-compassion. We focused on tra training a skill and we, we did an exercise right there and you can actually view it and you can participate in it even uh, uh, these weeks or months later. It was an exercise in forgiveness and we took a lot of time going through that. And part of the exercise is developing a capacity to move through resentment so that we can actually move towards forgiving the other. And I broke it down into several steps and it's done in a kind of a very personal, even meditative kind of frame. But as I shared there, and I'll share again with you, having practiced this uh, very regularly, this practice of forgiveness for um, now over five years, I can attest to the fact that if you visit and revisit and revisit wounds that have only ever been attached to resentment, it will loosen that up over time and that you may find your way through the resentment to forgiveness so that when the one is ask, someone's asking you for, to forgive something that's been wrong, uh, that you'll have the capacity. You have the capacity to forgive. Um, you'll also see in that presentation how I make a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. And just to remind you of that, because I think it's pertinent here, is that to forgive somebody, which is to let go of resentment, um, is and, and, the, and the goal is to do that at a, at a deep emotional level, not just some kind of cognitive exercise. But that's not to be equated with reconciliation, which is we're going we're gonna to be friends again. There are some situations where it's not prudent to do that. And yet it really is advisable that we learn how to forgive. So we separate out those two. I recommend you to week number four. I think you'll find that valuable, including the exercise. And then, and then there's another resource, which I've mentioned. It just was published in December. It's a DVD of a meditation that I've done uh, uh, in, in uh, sync with a company called iAwake Technologies. So there's a meditation uh, technology with music that is 
very soothing and calming of the brain. And I actually, in that uh, DVD, lead uh, uh, participants through this, this forgiveness exercise. And uh, I recommend you to that resource as well. Uh, the Freedom of Forgiveness is the title of the DVD. It's available uh, through my website. And you can see the, the uh, address of my website on this slide right here at drbobweathers.com. So these are all resources. And, and Angela, all of these are meant to be a cultivating of the recipient as much as the giver um, of, of forgiveness, so uh, um, of apology or of uh, making amends. And I hope this is a helpful start. So just to summarize, dialogue is critical or essential, that it's really important that we establish I think the 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 most the, the most open-minded attitude, open-hearted attitude possible, and I think that that requires our owning up to our own fallibility or our shadow. And I also believe that there's work that we need to do. And I think it's like building muscles of any kind. To develop muscles of forgiveness requires practice. And uh, I've got some uh, guidelines that I think that you can adapt to your own uh, needs. And, and hopefully find useful in that fourth week podcast as well as in the as in the DVD, the uh, the freedom of forgiveness. So thank you for your questions, and I encourage you to uh, uh, submit more questions today as we move through this topic, which is today what I want to do is I want to uh, introduce kind of the foundations of a book that I'm completing just now. I'm just finishing up a book right now, and this is actually the title of the book: Unshaming self-forgiveness as daily practice. That's the title of the book, and, and I'm going to be taking you through some of the central con, uh, concepts uh, right from the beginning chapters onward uh, over the next several weeks. And the goal is to include some of the material and focus on something that's uh, not so easy to do in the book, and that is uh, for us to practice here in real time together. So we'll have a couple of journaling exercises over the next several minutes together. I encourage you to either grab a, a pad of paper and a pen or uh, um, a tablet or a laptop or whatever you can write on because there'll be some exercises that I feel like will be useful to you uh, and also that you can refer to later so it'll be valuable to write them down. I'll introduce for those of you that are new and uh, uh, for all of us that have been here just a reminder of kind of the context for our talking about unshaming and uh, the centrality of self-compassion or self-forgiveness to uh, a truly effective recovery. Uh, for the, the past few years, I've been leading a weekly group. I mention it every week because as my calendar would have it, I come right from this group at a local treatment center beginnings, leading a group that I've led for the last over two years now, and it's a men's group that focuses on shame. We've developed over time, uh, the title of the group is the Unshaming Group. It felt more appropriate because what we're trying to do is, uh, is to find solutions to or antidotes to the shame that so oftentimes binds the heart and soul of the addict as well as the individual in early recovery from addiction. So part of the context of the writing that I've been doing for the last uh, two or three years, as well as our presentations here today, um, uh, is in the context of this, of this group that I've been leading. And I refer to the group often because it's so fresh in my mind. There's another context, and it's a personal context, and it has to do with me. I'm in my own recovery. I began, uh, uh, attempted to begin recovery about 10 years ago, and have been in uh, earnest recovery uh, uh, with abstinence over the last almost six years. 
And, and so when I lead groups or when I meet with you today, it's coming very much from the position of physician heal thyself. Uh, uh, it's my, uh, my story. And for many of you who are listening, uh, your story as well. And if you're not uh, in recovery yourself uh, uh, from addiction, you certainly, uh, chances are very high that you know someone, in fact, somebody close to you that is either in active addiction or in recovery. And so I'm, I'm really wanting to kind of level the playing field in terms of our conversations to make sure that you know that I'm coming from, from a place of uh, humility and active learning myself. I present this every week when I meet with new group members so that they know too, it makes a big difference. Um, uh, there's a curious synchronicity here is that uh, the, uh, 40 years ago, as I began my undergraduate studies in psychology, my very first counseling course, I started in January of 1978. So there's exactly 40 years ago. And this next slide has the textbook, one of the textbooks that we use in the course. Henry Nowen, who's a, a Catholic pastoral counselor, he's deceased since then, but he had a vast influence on me. I read a number of his books, including this book called The Wounded Healer. He says here in the subtitle, in our own woundedness, we can become a source of life for others. And it's in that spirit that we're here together, is that uh, I certainly come to you as a wounded healer, both in, in um, uh sincere seeking of my own ongoing healing, as well as to extend to you grace and support and solid information, uh, hopefully in support of your own recovery process and your own healing as well. So 40 years later, here we are. I was thinking about it this week is that I can certainly vouch for this is that when I, when I, uh, I took that course, I was still all of 21 years old. I'm now 62 <laughs> and that uh, and starting that course in January of 1978, I, uh, I, I think I was 22. I correct that I was 22. I was either 21 or 22. <laughs> I was a lot younger. Is that what's, what's amazing to me is that young man that I was just starting to study psychology. It was my very first counseling course. Um, I had a lot to learn. That was clear right from the beginning is that I would have never have imagined reading this book by Henry now and how applicable it would come to be over time. And so there's a, there's an amazing sense of, uh, how it is sometimes that we're fated to, uh, 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 follow a path and it reveals itself sometimes out of chronological order. So I'm reading the book on, on uh, uh, the wounded healer and then coming uh, really in midlife into real awareness of my own need for profound healing in regards to addiction. All right, so as we move into talking about shame, I wanna start by talking about the two faces of shame. And I discussed this in my book and we've covered uh, this in a previous podcast, but I want to uh, uh, do something different today. I wanna to present the information uh, more briefly to you. And I want to do an exercise related to this information that will be brand new. Um, just to start with, when we talk about shame, shame is, uh, uh, in fact, I just asked uh, today uh, to the, the, uh, the clients uh, in my uh, men's group this afternoon, why is it important that we're talking about shame in the context of recovery? And at this point, many of the clients have had enough conversations with me in various groups that they, they answer uh, uh, well and completely that uh, uh, stress is the number one trigger for relapse to addiction. 
and that of all of the human emotions, the, the, the emotion that is most linked to elevation of our stress hormones, specifically cortisol, is shame. And so shame is the most stressful human emotion. So it stands to reason that if stress is the number one trigger for relapse, that it would behoove you and me, especially if we're in, in a, a sincere recovery, to find some way to address shame in our lives. And so uh, that gets us in the ballpark in terms of discussing shame. Now, the studies that I'm referring to, there were 200 studies that were summarized out of what's referred to as a meta-analysis uh, done at Harvard, where they studied 200 uh, uh, contemporary studies of, of, of uh, stress and uh, stress hormones and the emotions that are connected to that. And uh, what they found was of these 200 studies, the highest Cortisol was linked to what I see as two sides of a coin here, both of them related to stress. The first side of the coin is anything that's a threat to social acceptance is going to drive my stress level up. And by threat to social acceptance, we can think about that in terms of just being kicked out of a group. Today in our group, we discussed, uh, uh, in my case, losing my professional license owing to addiction, which was an experience of a massive threat to social acceptance. We had somebody in the group today talk about being imprisoned and what that was like. Um, we had people talk about uh, dreams they had had of a life that they wanted to live uh, with, with uh, uh, fellow peers that were committed to the same path and that they had fallen off of the path owing to addiction. And uh, I don't believe there was anybody in the group today that couldn't identify with the experience of loss of social acceptance and the stress that comes with that. In fact, it led us to an interesting piece today is that with this threat to social acceptance, which as I say is one face of shame, uh, uh, it leads to isolation. And so when we talk in addiction about how it is that our addictions isolate us, I've, it was revelatory to me today to acknowledge that in the context of talking about shame is that it's, it's uh, no accident that we will tend to isolate around addiction for a number of different reasons, including the shame that so often goes hand in hand with it and the threat to being ostracized or marginalized, kicked out of a group. We don't want to be stigmatized and so we, we, uh, we go over in the corner and, and uh, do our drugs and do our alcohol and do our other addictions. And so um, we asked the question in the group today, why would, why would the threat to social acceptance stir up so much uh, uh, cortisol, so much of, of the stress response? And the short answer is, if you look at uh, uh, us as human beings in evolutionary perspective, that we need each other for survival. And it's not so long ago that that was quite literal. If I got kicked out of the social group, out of my community, out of my tribe, and left to my own devices, is that I would be some animal's next meal. And uh, we're not so evolved uh, in terms of human history to be evolved beyond that biologically. And so there's a massive threat to our, uh, our survival entailed in being kicked out of a group. Now, I mentioned the flip side. If there's two sides, the first side is a threat to social acceptance. The other side is a threat to self-esteem. And we discussed this today this way, is that if I am not competent at staying connected to my protective social group, that it's understandable that that would go right into feelings of, of uh, incompetence, call it low self-esteem immediately, because 
uh, I'm not doing well at staying connected to you, my social group. And there's, uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. It's a problem for my survival. And so that, that it's hard to imagine being kicked out of a social group. And as we talked about today, whether it's loss of professional stature, as in my case, loss, uh, loss of freedom, as in, in those that have been imprisoned, and so on it goes, um, is that that's intimately connected to loss of self-esteem. One of the ironies of this, before we move into our journal exercise here in just a moment, is that uh, is that either way you go, whether it's loss of self, uh, threat to social acceptance or threat to self-esteem, is that one of the ready solutions that all of us that have experienced addiction have found is that uh, if we're talking about addiction to substance, addiction to chemicals, we can find chemicals that in the short term will alleviate that problem, either by numbing us out or making us high and forget. Uh, our shame, forget our uh, being kicked out of the group. And so there really is a, a, a vicious cycle that kicks in here, is that if I feel at risk of losing your favor, um, it goes into my feeling bad about myself. If I feel bad about myself, we actually talked about this today, if I feel bad enough about myself, people won't want to hang around me because most people don't want to hang around somebody who's down in the dumps towards themselves all the time. And so you get this vicious cycle going, and then to add fuel to the fire is then, then we'll abuse um, our substance of choice to alleviate that, which only exacerbates, only increases uh, the problems that we already had in terms of threats to connection to others and threats to uh, our feeling good about ourselves. So the journaling exercise I want to engage in for just an, the next uh, few minutes is this. Take your uh, paper or um, your, uh, your uh, tablet that you're writing on, and I want you to write down an experience that you've had in your life uh, uh, maybe one that feels manageable to you uh, in memory, uh, in which you've lost social acceptance. I want you to recount what happened, and just as important, how it felt to you. So an experience where you lost social acceptance, you got kicked out of a group. I mentioned my case where I got kicked out of a profession, owing to my own addictive behaviors for sure. Uh, and so recount what happened, and especially importantly is to name how it felt to you. So take a minute to jot that down right now. This is something that you can hang on to and it will serve you as we move through uh, this material together. You can develop this out in more detail for sure, but at least you have the beginnings of it here. An event where you were uh, uh, kicked out of a valued group or, uh, or by a, uh, kicked out by a valued individual and how that felt to you. Now I wanna take it deeper into this second face of shame now. And that is with this experience of rejection or being marginalized, um, I want you to reflect on how did that impact your feelings about yourself? In other words, your self-esteem. Write about how your self-esteem might have taken a direct hit in relationship to being kicked out. 
So take a, a moment to write down some initial thoughts here too. There'll be more time you can spend with this. And for any of you that have done some self-reflection, um, especially in recovery around uh, these, these issues, I'm sure that it's very alive for you. And I think there's value. Let me say a word about writing things down. Um, I was just talking to a coaching client on the phone yesterday, and we talked about uh, journaling out thoughts and feelings and the value in being able to get it out of our head for one thing, uh, being able to get it out and actually to put it into writing, really what we're doing from a brain perspective is moving material that's jostling around in our emotional centers of our brain, our limbic system, and moving it to a frontal cortex phenomenon where you're actually putting it into language. And then furthermore, you're concretizing it being put into language. So emotions to words to concrete writing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a way to literally kind of get it out, purge yourself, and it can be really releasing just to engage in this exercise. So it's oftentimes not enough just to think about it. Actually writing it out uh, uh, concretely on a piece of paper or on a computer can be very useful. And also it's something you can come back to and expand on. So I really, really recommend your writing. Um, I practice uh, daily journaling, have over the years, and encourage you to do the same thing. I found great value in it. So literally writing things out can be really helpful. I want to mention uh, just a piece here uh, that came up today around this exercise. We did this exercise in the men's unshaming group earlier today. One of the individuals, in fact, it was one who mentioned having gone to prison, and I really uh, chimed in with this, talked about the, that, that there was the, the loss of freedom and the obvious loss of connection to others by being imprisoned. Uh, for me, it was being in a detox unit at a hospital and being in a lockdown unit for the first time uh, as a patient. I had worked in a lot of hospitals as a psychologist, but never had been there as a patient. And that experience of just complete separation from those I loved and everything I knew uh, uh, was immense. And in fact, the individual who talked about being in prison today said, he said, Dr. Bob, it doesn't matter if you're in prison in a hospital or some other painful circumstance, suffering is suffering. And I really appreciate his saying that because I think that that's accurate. Um, so whatever you've experienced in this domain uh, leads into the next observation. The same individual said, the hardest thing was that he said, as I received the sentence from the judge and then, and then the, the, the penalty of going to prison, he said, I began to think of myself in the language of, of the sentencing. And uh, he didn't use these words, I'll use these words, and I certainly relate to this phenomenon, where you begin to see yourself in the eyes of the accusers. And uh, this is, uh, there's a fine distinction, and we're gonna talk about it in just a moment, making a distinction between shame and guilt. He wasn't talking, nor am I talking about uh, uh, not being guilty as charged, I was, and I suspect he was too. But it's when that moves to the next level where you begin to label yourself as being bad, as being hopeless, 
that's the killing uh, progression. And that move, uh, 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 as he was saying, and for me too, I can really relate to this, that move is really supported by this, this um, there's a shift in perspective where I begin to see myself from the eyes of those that I imagine what they would be thinking as they accuse me. And you may have a similar, uh, a parallel path to how this has gone from loss of social acceptance to loss of self-esteem, but this was my path and he named it. Uh, he put his finger right on it today. I think that good information is liberating. <laughs> and I think that our getting clear on some of these discriminations here, for example, between the loss of social acceptance and the loss of self-esteem and their relationship, how they tie into one another. If we can begin to get articulate with that, uh, it helps it helps build the foundation as we move forward because we'll be we'll be definitely addressing in every session including today and next week how to alleviate these feelings of shame that can be so paralyzing and so i really think that a good foundational um uh, uh kind of clearing house of information will serve you as it has served me all right well, I mentioned this um, uh, as we complete the exercise that we're going to be talking about another critical distinction. So let's move to that right now. And that is a distinction that we emphasize in our groups. And I think it's critical to uh, effective recovery is to discern or discriminate between shame and guilt. Uh, to put it very simply, um, guilt is the feeling I have when I've done something bad, when I've done something bad. And my own view is that we should feel guilty. I call it rightful guilt. We should feel guilty when we wronged another person. That's our temperature. That's our barometer for knowing that we've crossed a line. Uh, but what happens uh, with shame is that it takes the guilt. I've done something wrong and it turns it on me and it makes me someone wrong. In other words, I didn't do something bad. I am someone bad. Psychology refers to what's called the fundamental attribution error. And it's called fundamental because it's primary. It's really important to get this. And attribution is simply this. It's to what we attribute something. Uh, do, we, do we attribute our actions to something or somebody, including ourselves? And so who or what do I attribute my behavior to? That's what attribution is. And there's an error that is just killing, I think particularly in the arena of addiction and recovery. Uh, and, it's, and, it, and it hinges on this distinction between guilt and shame. With guilt, I've done something wrong and I can correct it. Actually, guilt motivates me to change. With shame, it's about me, it's about my personhood. And uh, it doesn't motivate me to change because if it's something of who I am, that may not be quite so changeable. In fact, uh, this actually engenders demoralization or hopelessness. Uh, shame is a freeze response. It actually stops us in our tracks and we're paralyzed with it. And so you can see why how we attribute a situation matters a lot, especially in the context of recovery. As it turns out, in this same period of time, when I took my first counseling class 40 years ago, I was also a double, uh, I was a double major in psychology and religious studies. And uh, uh, in religious studies, I was uh, studying another pastoral theologian, Dr. Thomas Oden. And this is the book that I read during the same time. I referred to the previous book, The Wounded Healer by Henry Nouwen. I read this book, Guilt Free by Thomas Oden. And one of the theses of Dr. Oden, I got to meet him later, which I was really pleased, it was really gratifying, because he had meant a lot to me in graduate school. 
and uh, in, in college and in graduate school. And his point in guilt-free is that this distinction, shame will kill us, shame will bind us up, it'll paralyze us, and guilt helps to free us. It helps to free us from behaviors that are harming others. And uh, there's nothing, um, there's nothing in guilt that we that we should uh, be afraid of or ignore. It doesn't feel good, but that's the point. The image I have is. Um, if, if I put my hand on a stove and it's hot, I want to have a response that moves me away from that. I think of guilt as being kind of a natural response to that kind of heat in our lives, and we can correct ourselves. And so Dr. Odin's book, Guilt Free, talks about how it is that, that we can actually be freed of the burden of shame by assuming rightful guilt. And so if shame paralyzes, and I believe it does not only neuropsychologically, but also behaviorally, guilt can actually free us. When I present to clients who are seeking recovery from addiction and ask, uh, as we talk into this, ask for those who have experienced self-judgment, self-condemnation, self-loathing, shame in a word, uh, everyone, including myself, raises our hands. And so it's universal in recovery. And, and if what we're talking about here with the fundamental attribution error which is moving our attribution from somebody I am, my, my personhood, my disposition is what psychology calls it, moving that from my disposition to moving that to a situation that is under the influence of my addiction, of drugs uh, or other behaviors, under the influence of those, I've done things that violate myself and violate others. That's a situation I can correct. And so we're, uh, it's key in these conversations I have uh, with, with the clients I work with that we really reinforce rightful guilt and, and uh, uh, as much as possible correct this misattribution to toxic shame that is so uh, epidemic in, in recovery. So I want to ask you to do a second exercise now with your journal. <clears throat> We just wrote down earlier an example of a situation, an experience in which we lost social acceptance and also lost self-esteem. That really is a situation that evoked shame for us. Uh, now, in comparison to that, I want you to write about a second um, uh, instance, and this would be one, an example of a time that you've done something wrong where instead of shame, you felt guilt, you felt rightful guilt. When you think of an example like this, I want you to write it down, the situation, and I want you to record how it felt, how it felt in your body, how it felt in your being or in your soul. And so just write out a few, uh, a few thoughts about how guilt felt to you. And, and as you're doing that, hold in mind what you wrote. I hope you're beginning to get a sense of the difference between these two feeling states along the lines of what we're talking about is that the, the one rightful guilt does not feel good. There's nothing pleasant about it, but it need not uh, uh, grind us down. And shame by definition does do that. In fact, I want you to ask you to add one more piece to your journaling right now. And that is, 
can you, can you uh, make a note with both the earlier journaling about a shameful experience and now this more recent one with guilt, can you make a note here of the outcomes of each one of those feeling states? How did it end up going for you if it was in the context of a relationship for the relationship? First with shame, how did it go? How did it end up? And then ask the same question about guilt. How did that play out? Take a minute to journal this down too. I want to encourage you to stick with this too. After we finish today, I want to encourage you to uh, uh, come back to this journaling and you can amplify it or expand it. I encourage you to do that. Let me give you uh, the example that came up for me in preparing for today as well as uh, right now as I was sitting here. I had a, 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 a collision a couple days ago with, with a friend, a, a, a dear friend in terms of a relational rupture. And um, it didn't go well, and both of us had our feelings hurt by the interaction. And uh, uh, later on, uh, uh, we connected with each other in hopes of repairing it, and kind of sort of did that. But it wasn't until last night, after I'd had a day of reflection, and we came back together, and it was by phone now, we just uh, left messages for one another, where it was clearly an instance where in the past I would have felt ashamed. I was raised to bend myself into a pretzel to make people happy. That's how I was raised. Psychology calls that pathological accommodation. And I uh, uh, was an expert at that. It was like my survival, my identity was wound into that. And I've been working for the last several decades to try to unwind that karma, but I'm vulnerable to that. And so when there's a rupture in a relationship, oftentimes I will feel bad, not about what happened, I'll feel bad about me. And those feelings certainly got uh, activated over the weekend. But what I was struck by was by last night as I was thinking about what was going on for me, circumstances. What were the circumstances of my being uh, uh, angry and probably um, uh, uh, overreactive, not probably, for sure, overreactive the night before. And it was clear to me that there were a couple of circumstances that, that uh, that were important for me to name. And we did that last night uh, in our, in our uh, uh, phone message, uh, uh, a phone call to each other, is that uh, each of us was able to provide listening and support for the other. And each of us was able to share our own subjective experience or the situation or circumstances that led to this misunderstanding. And uh, it didn't feel good to, f to have the misunderstanding. And I can certainly go down the sinkhole of shame. I'm less vulnerable to do that as the years go by, for which I'm immensely grateful. But I didn't go down that sinkhole this time, nor did she, is that both of us were able to repair, I think both of us to own up to our own uh, 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 mistakes, almost like distorted perception. Certainly for me, I was able to own up to that. And I didn't feel bad about me. It felt like, yeah, in the circumstance, that's what happened. I'm sorry. 
uh, I really apologize and I'm not in that same uh, state of mind right now so I can really hear more where you were coming from without getting so defensive. That's an example where where toxic shame would have just stopped everything and I probably would have wanted to uh, isolate or be continue to be very reactive in interaction with this friend. Um, instead, I was delivered into a, a state of grace, which was uh, trying to understand with some compassion for myself what I was going through, able to extend compassion to her. And, uh, and that's what I call rightful guilt. I, I, it's not okay that I was overreactive, uh, but I apologize for it, understand the context of it, and reassure her that I think that we'll be fine. And the conversation continued and we were fine. So it uh, makes all the difference, the outcome of those two feeling states. Uh, shame can be crippling. And as we talked about earlier uh, uh, today, as well as in the group uh, uh, earlier as well, uh, shame can not only be uh, crippling, but for an addict uh, in, uh, 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 in recovery, uh, it can be uh, uh, a massive trigger to relapse. And so I feel like that what we're talking about here is not some kind of at arm's length clinical conversation. It really is survival, especially in earliest recovery. If you're an individual seeking recovery from addiction, this distinction that we're talking about will be life-saving for you potentially and uh, certainly makes all the difference. So uh, just in wrapping up, we can summarize it is that guilt opened my heart last night and I feel completely open today to this friend. And I was struggling with shame. I was struggling with anger for a good 24 hours and it began to kind of unpack as it began to move from uh, uh, projecting blame onto her or, or blaming myself for being so imperfect uh, to being able to accept myself for my limitations and to be able to confess that vulnerably to her, trusting that she would accept and respond in kind, and she did. And so guilt opened both of our, our, our hearts. It's a weird thing to say, but rightful guilt can actually be restorative, like the book title, Guilt Free. And uh, the earlier shame, and certainly I know about this deeply, my, my own addiction is so... Uh, 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 makes so much sense in the context of lifelong shame that I finally found a way to medicate away, which only uh, put fuel to the fire, didn't it? <laughs> and so uh, the, the, the guilt and the opening of heart was the solution in this last interaction. And I hope that you'll find value as you practice this yourself. I encourage you to practice the, the, the continue to dive into the journaling exercise, putting pen to paper, fingertips to keyboard to get these words and these feelings out. I also really encourage you to access the earlier podcast I mentioned, week number four, uh, since we go into such detail there for some real practical skills that you can develop. And by all means, check out the DVD that I was mentioning because it's, it's all about what we're talking about in terms of practice that you can do. I recommend doing this every day. Uh, ideally, every morning when you get up is to clear the ledger, clear the ledger in terms of uh, 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 any resentments that you have um, or any forgivenesses that you need to ask for. I really do believe that there's hope uh, in what we're talking about it. And even though guilt uh, is, is a dark feeling and unpleasant and shame is an oftentimes incapacitating feeling, I feel like that if we can talk into this in ways that uh, are vitalizing, that give, give, give the hope of a new future, I feel like it's worth our doing that. I also feel like that uh, the subtitle of this slide is uh, a Recovery for Everyone. I believe that what we're talking about here is that if, whether you're in recovery yourself from addiction 
or in relationship to a loved one who's in recovery is that we're talking about, as Angela's question touched on earlier, we're talking about a relational phenomenon here. And I don't know how to, how to think about recovery without thinking about it in the context of relationship. It's why I have another book that's in the wings I'm writing with my wife. The title of this book is Plural Recovery, is that, uh, that it's impossible uh, for us to think about recovery in isolation. And then particularly in our primary uh, love relationships, that it's key that we find ways to repair ruptures. And I'm hoping that today's conversation moves us in that direction. Uh, I want to invite any final questions before we wrap up here and share with you about next week. Any final questions? While I'm waiting for any final questions, let me also again recommend that you Turn your friends on to what we're doing here. The more the merrier. I really appreciate spreading the word. So tag your friends, uh, uh, share, share, share this, uh, the uh, link uh, uh, on your social media or email. Uh, put the word out there. It's a free resource and we're really glad to offer this to the larger community. So, um, so please do that. If you don't have any questions today, but other questions come up, for example, as you do the exercise, um, uh, the journaling exercises, reviewing those. If questions come up, you're very welcome to write me. You can write me here through Ask an Addiction Specialist uh, in the chat box. You can also write me on my website, www.drbobweathers.com. There's a place there and, uh, uh, and uh, people are using that and I wanna encourage you to use that and I will respond, okay? So I'm very eager to hear from you. Uh, uh, I have somebody chiming in to say thank you. I love positive reinforcement. Messiah, thank you for, for that. Uh, I want to thank you and Angela and others that have participated in the last week or two, the last several weeks in terms of questions, and your support means a lot to me. Next week, uh, we'll be looking at shame from five different perspectives. We'll be looking at shame from a holistic uh, vantage point that involves five different perspectives. And I want you to bring your thinking cap and your feeling cap to next week. And, and there'll be more because with each week, we'll be introducing more material to deepen our understanding of recovery, particularly for now in looking at unshaming as our goal. And I'll be providing uh, practical suggestions, journaling exercises, etc., where you can really uh, get this material in your body and learn it by heart. And uh, God willing, it will be of some transformative value to you and to people that you love in your life. So thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you with us. I want to thank Austin and Franz again for co-producing. I want to thank Beginnings Treatment Center for sponsoring this. And have a wonderful week. I'll see you next week. Take care.